The Poetry of the Celtic Races, by Ernest Renan. Without contradiction the legend of St. Brandan is the most singular product of this combination of Celtic naturalism with Christian spiritualism. The taste of the Hihernian monks for making maritime pilgrimages through the archipelago of the Scottish and Irish seas, everywhere dotted with monasteries, and the memory of yet more distant voyages in polar seas, furnished the framework of this curious composition, so rich in local impressions. From Pliny we learn that, even in his time, the Bretons loved to venture their lives upon the high seas, in search of unknown isles m. Latron has proved that in 795, 65 years consequently before the Danes, Irish monks landed in Iceland and established themselves on the coast. In this island the Danes found Irish books and bells, and the names of certain localities still bear witness to the sojourn of those monks, who were known by the name of Papi, fathers. In the Faroe Isles, in the Orkneys, and the Shetlands, indeed in all parts of the northern seas, the Scandinavians found themselves preceded by those Papi, whose habits contrasted so strangely with their own. Did they not have a glimpse too of that great land, the vague memory of which seems to pursue them, and which Columbus was to discover, following the traces of their dreams? It is only known that the existence of an island, traversed by a great river, and situated to the west of Ireland, was, on the faith of the Irish, a dogma for medieval geographers. The story went that, towards the middle of the 6th century, a monk called Barontus, on his return from voyaging upon the sea, came and craved hospitality at the monastery of Clonfort. Brandon the abbot besought him to give pleasure to the brothers by narrating the marvels of God that he had seen on the high seas. Barontus revealed to them the existence of an island surrounded by fogs, where he had left his disciple Murnoch, it is the land of promise that God keeps for his saints. Brandon with seventeen of his monks desired to go in quest of this mysterious land. They set forth in a leather boat, bearing with them as their sole provision a utensil of butter, wherewith to grease the hides of their craft. For seven years they lived thus in their boat, abandoning to God's sail, and rudder, and only stopping on their course to celebrate the feasts of Christmas and Easter on the back of the king of fishes, Jasconius. Every step of this monastic odyssey is a miracle, on every isle is a monastery, where the wonders of a fantastical universe respond to the extravagances of a holy ideal life. Here is the Isle of Sheep, where these animals govern themselves according to their own laws, elsewhere the paradise of birds, where the winged race lives after the fashion of monks, singing matins and lauds at the canonical hours. Brandon and his companions celebrate mass here with the birds, and remain with them for fifty days, nourishing themselves with nothing but the singing of their hosts. Elsewhere there is the Isle of Delight, the ideal of monastic life in the midst of the seas. Here no material necessity makes itself felt, the lamps light of themselves for the offices of religion, and never burn out, for they shine with a spiritual light. An absolute stillness reigns in the island, everyone knows precisely the hour of his death, one feels neither cold, nor heat, nor sadness, nor sickness of body or soul. All this has endured since the days of St. Patrick, who so ordained it. The land of promise is more marvelous still, there an eternal day reigns, all the plants have flowers, all the trees bear fruits. Some privileged men alone have visited it. On their return a perfume is perceived to come from them, which their garments keep for forty days. We have just seen how, around the legend of a monk the Irish imagination grouped a whole cycle of physical and maritime myths. 
The purgatory of St. Patrick became the framework of another series of fables, embodying the Celtic ideas concerning the other life and its different conditions. Perhaps the profoundest instinct of the Celtic peoples is their desire to penetrate the unknown. With the sea before them, they wish to know what lies beyond, they dream of a promised land. In the face of the unknown that lies beyond the tomb, they dream of that great journey which the Pan of Dante has celebrated. The legend tells how, while St. Patrick was preaching about paradise and hell to the Irish, they confessed that they would feel more assured of the reality of these places if he would allow one of them to descend there and then come back with information. St. Patrick consented. A pit was dug by which an Irishman set out upon the subterranean journey. Others wished to attempt the journey after him. With the consent of the abbot of the neighboring monastery, they descended into the shaft, they passed through the torments of hell and purgatory, and then each told of what he had seen. Some did not emerge again, those who did laughed no more, and were henceforth unable to join in any gaiety. Knight Owen made a descent in 1153, and gave a narrative of his travels, which had a prodigious success. Other legends related that when St. Patrick drove the goblins out of Ireland, he was greatly tormented in this place for forty days by legions of black birds. The Irish betook themselves to the spot and experienced the same assaults which gave them an immunity from purgatory. According to the narrative of Geraldus Cambrensis, the isle which served as the theatre of this strange, superstition was divided into two parts. One belonged to the monks, the other was occupied by evil spirits, who celebrated religious rites in their own manner, with an infernal uproar. Some people, for the expiation of their sins, voluntarily exposed themselves to the fury of those demons. There were nine ditches in which they lay for a night, tormented in a thousand different ways. To make the descent it was necessary to obtain the permission of the bishop. His duty it was to dissuade the penitent from attempting the adventure, and to point out to him how many people had gone and who had never come out again. If the devotee persisted, he was ceremoniously conducted to the shaft. He was lowered down by means of a rope, with a loaf and a vessel of water to strengthen him in the combat against the fiend which he proposed to wage. On the following morning the sacristan offered the rope anew to the sufferer. If he mounted to the surface again, they brought him back to the church, bearing the cross and chanting psalms. If he were not to be found, the sacristan closed the door and departed. In more modern times pilgrims to the sacred isles spent nine days there. They passed over to them in a boat hollowed out of the trunk of a tree. Once a day they drank of the water of the lake, processions and stations were performed in the beds or cells of the saints. Upon the ninth day the penitents entered into the shaft. Sermons were preached to them warning them of the danger they were about to run, and they were told of terrible examples. They forgave their enemies and took farewell of one another as though they were at their last agony. According to contemporary accounts, the shaft was a low and narrow kiln, into which nine entered at a time, and in which the penitents passed a day and a night, huddled and tightly pressed against one another. Popular belief imagined an abyss underneath, to swallow up the unworthy and the unbelieving. On emerging from the pit they went and bathed in the lake, and so their purgatory was accomplished. It would appear from the accounts of eyewitnesses that, to this day, things happened very nearly after the same fashion. The immense reputation of the purgatory of St. Patrick filled the whole of the Middle Ages. Preachers made appeal to the public notoriety of this great fact, 
to controvert those who had their doubts regarding purgatory. In the year 1358 Edward III gave to a Hungarian of noble birth, who had come from Hungary expressly to visit the sacred well, letters patent attesting that he had undergone his purgatory. Narratives of those travels beyond the tomb became a very fashionable form of literature, and it is important for us to remark the holy mythological and as holy Celtic characteristics dominant in them. It is in fact evident that we are dealing with a mystery or local cult anterior to Christianity and probably based upon the physical appearance of the country. The idea of purgatory, in its final and concrete form, fared specially well amongst the Bretons and the Irish. Bede is one of the first to speak of it in a descriptive manner, and the learned Mr. Wright very justly observes that nearly all the descriptions of purgatory come from Irishmen, or from Anglo-Saxons who have resided in Ireland, such as St. Fursey, Tundale, the Northumbrian Trithulm, and Knight Owen. It is likewise a remarkable thing that only the Irish were able to behold the marvels of their purgatory. A canon from Hempstead in Holland, who descended in 1494, saw nothing at all. Evidently this idea of travels in the other world, and its infernal categories, as the Middle Ages accepted it, is Celtic. The belief in the three circles of existence is again to be found in the triads, under an aspect which does not permit one to see any Christian interpolation. The soul's peregrinations after death are also the favorite theme of the most ancient Armorican poetry. Among the features by which the Celtic races most impressed the Romans were the precision of their ideas upon the future life, their inclination to suicide, and the loans and contracts which they signed with the other world in view. The more frivolous peoples of the South saw with awe in this assurance the fact of a mysterious race, having an understanding of the future and the secret of death. Through the whole of classical antiquity runs the tradition of an Isle of Shadows, situated on the confines of Brittany, and of a folk devoted to the passage of souls, which lives upon the neighboring coast. In the night they hear dead men prowling about their cabin and knocking at the door. Then they rise up, their craft is laden with invisible beings, on their return it is lighter. Several of these features reproduced by Plutarch, Claudian, Procopius, and Setses, would incline one to believe that the renown of the Irish myths made its way into classical antiquity about the 1st or 2nd century. Plutarch, for example, relates, concerning the Cronian Sea, fables identical with those which fill the legend of St. Malo. Procopius, describing the sacred island of Brittia, which consists of two parts separated by the sea, one delightful, the other given over to evil spirits, seems to have read in advance the description of the purgatory of St. Patrick, which Geraldus Cambrensis was to give seven centuries later. It cannot be doubted for a moment, after the able researches of Messrs. Ozanam, Labitte, and Wright, that to the number of poetical themes which Europe owes to the genius of the Celts is to be added the framework of the divine comedy. One can understand how greatly this invincible attraction to fables must have discredited the Celtic race in the eyes of nationalities that believed themselves to be more serious. It is in truth a strange thing that the whole of the medieval epoch, whilst submitting to the influence of the Celtic imagination and borrowing from Brittany and Ireland at least half of its poetical subjects, believed itself obliged, for the saving of its own honor, to slight and satirize the people to which it owed them. Even Cretine de Troyes, for example, who passed his life in exploiting the Breton romances for his own purposes, originated the saying. Les Galois sought to par nature. Plus sots K. Bet de Pateur. Some English chronicler, 
I know not who, imagined he was making a charming play upon words when he described those beautiful creations, the whole world of which deserved to live, as the childish nonsense with which those brutes of Bretons amused themselves. The Bollandists found it encumber to exclude from their collection, as apocryphal extravagances, those admirable religious legends, with which no church has anything to compare. The decided leaning of the Celtic race towards the ideal, its sadness, its fidelity, its good faith, caused it to be regarded by its neighbors as dull, foolish, and superstitious. They could not understand its delicacy and refined manner of feeling. They mistook for awkwardness the embarrassment experienced by sincere and open natures in the presence of more artificial natures. The contrast between French frivolity and Breton stubbornness above all led, after the 14th century, to most deplorable conflicts, once the Bretons ever emerged with a reputation for wrongheadedness. It was still worse, when the nation that most prides itself on its practical good sense found confronting it the people that, to its own misfortune, is least provided with that gift. Poor Ireland, with her ancient mythology, with her purgatory of St. Patrick, and her fantastic travels of St. Brandan, was not destined to find grace in the eyes of English Puritanism. One ought to observe the disdain of English critics for these fables, and their superb pity for the church which dallies with paganism, so far as to keep up usages which are notoriously derived from it. Assuredly we have here a praiseworthy zeal, arising from natural goodness, and yet, even if these flights of imagination did no more than render a little more supportable many sufferings which are said to have no remedy, that after all would be something. Who shall dare to say where, here on earth, is the boundary between reason and dreaming? Which is worth more, the imaginative instinct of man, or the narrow orthodoxy that pretends to remain rational when speaking of things divine? For my own part, I prefer the frank mythology, with all its vagaries, to a theology so paltry, so vulgar, and so colorless that it would be wronging God to believe that, after having made the visible world so beautiful he should have made the invisible world so prosaically reasonable. In presence of the ever-encroaching progress of a civilization, which is of no country, and can receive no name, other than that or modern of European, it would be puerile to hope that the Celtic race is in the future to succeed in obtaining isolated expression of its originality. And yet we are far from believing that this race has said its last word. After having put in practice all chivalries, devout and worldly, gone with Pereter in quest of the Holy Grail and fair ladies, and dreamed with St. Brandan of mystical Atlantides, who knows what it would produce in the domain of intellect if it hardened itself to an entrance into the world and subjected its rich and profound nature to the conditions of modern thought. It appears to me that there would result from this combination productions of high originality, a subtle and discreet manner of taking life, a singular union of strength and weakness, of rude simplicity and mildness. Few races have had so complete a poetic childhood as the Celtic, mythology, lyric poetry, epic, romantic imagination, religious enthusiasm, none of these failed them, why should reflection fail them? Germany, which commenced with science and criticism, has come to poetry, why should not the Celtic races, which began with poetry, finish with criticism? There is not so great a distance from one to the other as is supposed, the poetical races are the philosophic races, and at bottom philosophy is only a manner of poetry. When one considers how Germany, less than a century ago, had her genius revealed to her, 
how a multitude of national individualities, to all appearance effaced, have suddenly risen again in our own days, more instinct with life than ever, one feels persuaded that it is a rash thing to lay down any law on the intermittence and awakening of nations, and that modern civilization, which appeared to be made to absorb them, may perhaps be nothing more than their united fruition.